0: This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by the new cookbook, Pok Pok Noodles, recipes from Thailand and beyond by acclaimed Portland chef and best-selling author Andy Ricker. You have seen Andy on Parts Unknown, Vice, and of course know him from his award-winning restaurants all under the banner, Pok Pok. Pok Pok Noodles is the third book by Andy Ricker, and it is filled with recipes, stories, and the most delicious and satisfying dishes in the Thai culinary canyon. You can pre-order Pop Pok Noodle wherever you get your books and please be sure to visit one of the Pop Pok restaurants. You will not be disappointed that you did. Before we begin this week's show, I just want to quickly say thanks to all of you for listening. If you are here for the first time or you are back for a new episode, I sincerely want to thank you. It is so much fun making Let's Talk About Chef and receiving the emails from listeners about the show really makes it all worthwhile. If you want us to shout out your restaurant on next week's episode or write to us for any reason, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at letstalkaboutchef or follow me personally at chefbrianclark. I also want to give a warning that some of the stories today covered in 86th History, many would consider disturbing as they do include suicide. If you are listening with kids around or don't want to partake in this subject matter, you have been warned. That's it from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of 86th History. I know that on every show we have done so far, the Michelin Guide normally comes up. It has for years been what chefs consider the literal benchmark of success. It is what chefs that we have talked about, like Gordon Ramsay, Marco Pierre White, and Ferran Adria, spent their entire early careers striving for. And the day that they, and so many thousands of others, received their coveted Michelin stars is a day that they will remember forever. To receive a Michelin star is literal proof that you and your restaurant are great, that you as a chef are worthy, and that people should go and eat your food. However, like all things in life, there is a dark side to everything. A dark part that floats beneath the surface just out of sight and reach that Michelin and their anonymous inspectors don't really want you to know about. The truth is that chefs have gone crazy, quit the industry forever, buckled under the pressure, had severe substance abuse and addictions, and in two very extreme and horrifically sad cases ended their lives trying to maintain their Michelin stars. The Michelin Guide is not just an institution, it has been the most important one in food criticism. But, as times are changing, so too is the way that we find out about chefs and restaurants. A lot of chefs today are ignoring the Guide, not allowing the inspectors into their restaurants, and simply not caring about the power that they once held over them. The pressure to keep your status in the guide can be simply too much and now we are seeing for the first time a backlash against the standards the guide represents and the toll that it can take on the people cooking and making the food. And that is a strange but also very refreshing new world to see. The simple fact that so many cooks and chefs are working themselves ragged, not having a life outside of their kitchens, and spending their entire adult lives in pursuit of small stars printed next to their names, some would say, is completely insane. How did this little red book, produced by a tire company, become so important, so revered, and also so dangerous? This week on 86th History, The Michelin Guide, The Michelin Stars and the Michelin lies. In the year 1900, there were only about 3,000 cars in France. The car was still a relatively new and extremely modern mode of transportation, and the French were still relying on trains and even horses to get from place to place. Edward and André Michelin had a slight problem. They owned a car tire company and needed to figure out a way to increase their sales, so they came up with not a great ad campaign and not with trying to get people to buy cars for everyday transport. They figured out that if they published a guide to the country's best restaurants, hotels, and had maps everywhere, and was therefore a guide to a better lifestyle, people would want to buy cars. And then they would have to buy tires for their cars, so they could travel to these temples of food and hotels. And so the Michelin Guide was born. The first Michelin guide did not only include restaurants, but as I said, it also had maps, hotels, gas stations, and even car tire repair instructions. And the brothers paid for about 35,000 of them to be printed and handed out for free, and it was a huge success. With a new edition being printed every year in France, it was in 1904 that the Michelin company made a guide for Belgium, and then soon after guides for Switzerland, Bavaria, England, Ireland, Germany, and Spain. They were all for free, and more and more people started to buy cars. In 1920, Andre Michelin was visiting one of the stores that sold Michelin tires, and he saw three copies of the guide being used to prop up a workbench in the garage. He realized that people only truly value things that they have to pay for, and so the next year the guide removed all of the ads and cost $2.15. By 1922, the restaurant section of the guide was by far the most popular, and the brothers hired the first anonymous Michelin inspectors to travel around Europe and North Africa eating at restaurants so that they could be ranked the following year. However, the ranking of all restaurants proved to be a nearly impossible task, and so after a few years of arguments amongst the inspectors on which restaurant was best, The decision was made to focus on fine dining and make a system of stars one star meant that it was a very good restaurant in its category two stars excellent cooking worth a detour and finally the coveted three stars meant exceptional cuisine worth a special journey during world war ii publication of the guide was obviously suspended people had better things to do than worry about where they were going to go on vacation but the American government made a special request that they be given updated Michelin guides because their precise and accurate maps of France's roadways and towns gave them the upper hand over the retreating Germans. Because of the fact that during the war the Michelin guide was still being published for the army, it was easy for them to get back up and running when the war ended and put any of their competitors out of business, becoming the definitive book on European travel, hotels, and restaurants. By 1960, the guide had become the most important restaurant reviewer in Europe. Chefs would line up at newsstands the night before it came out to see if they had kept their ranking or had, in the most extreme of cases, gained another star. Chef Paul Bacus said quite publicly that the Michelin Guide is the only guide that matters. And for some reason or another, that little red book held the key to your success. Sometimes it's hard to define why something takes over an industry. Why did Harry Potter become so popular? Why is the iPhone more popular than a Samsung? For whatever reason that the Michelin Guide became so revered by the chefs that it was ranking, we may never know. But since the 1960s, chefs have lived and breathed by it. The release of the Michelin Guide was something similar to the Oscars. Every single year when the book came out, a media frenzy would happen. Who had gained a new star? Who had their first? And for the select few, who had lost one? and every year it continued This episode of 86 History is being brought to you by Tonight the new single off of Montreal indie legend Creef's new album Dovetail that is coming out on June 7th from Rockridge Music You can pre-order the album now and check out Creef's tour dates and all other information at creef.ca that's k r i e f . c a We have talked about the Guide's history. We have talked about how important the Guide is to chefs and cooks. We have said that very, very famous chefs lived and breathed by the stars they received. And now we get to talk about why the Michelin Guide is dangerous. There are no guidelines on what it takes to get a star. There is not a single document or even a PDF that a chef can look at to figure out what they may do to try and achieve such an exalted status. Basically, this is how it works. You as a chef present every dish and every sauce and every ingredient to the best of your ability. You lead your team of cooks to try and replicate that one original dish thousands of times. In most modern kitchens, the chef stands at the pass, the barrier between the kitchen and the diners. They alone during the service have the final say, thought, and look at each plate before it is carried out to the dining room and eaten. Michelin inspectors are anonymous. They book tables like anyone else would, by phone or email, and show up and eat. It is during that one single dinner service that an inspector sits down to what will determine your rating in the guide. They may return again over the coming months if their schedule allows it, and we will get to that. Essentially, one plate and one meal will define your future as a chef. And that is why the pressure to perform and exceed expectations on every single plate is so severe. For those of you that do not work in the culinary industry, let me take a moment to try and explain how completely insane this is. It's Friday night. It's 7.30. You have 17 shits across your board. Of those 17 shits, you have tables of 2, 3, 7, and on and on. You have spent the last 12 hours prepping for this exact moment. The bone marrow was roasted, the lamb was trimmed, and the vegetables were cut to perfection. All before this. You look at the 17 pieces of paper in front of you and your mind begins to build a pattern. It takes 18 minutes for the pigeon to cook, it takes four minutes for the Hasselback potatoes, the saucier called in six, so the second dishwasher who actually responded to your frantic text is now saucing the plates as they go out you'll mentally deal with how scared you are about that later. Your garde-manger station just broke up with her boyfriend, so you need to take extra care about seeming nice about her performance. You smile in her direction and say through gritted teeth that she has done a great job tonight, even though you can name seven different times you had to fix her mistakes. The pigeon comes, it's overcooked at the pass. So you take the pan over to the cook who is already mentally hanging by a thread and you lie to him and say, hey, I think the oven regulator is broken. This one's overcooked, can you please make me a new one? When all you want to do is smash the pan and the little bird inside of it through his frontal cortex. The waiter comes back and almost asks how long it will be on table seven, but before he can croak out a single word, give him a look of sheer murder that would literally make anyone cry, and he very quickly retreats back to the dining room. Finally, the plate is done. The pigeon is perfect and the sauce won't separate, and you send it out to the dining room where the girl who is working her way through college but is also extremely pretty will place it down gracefully in front of the guest, and you pray to whatever religious entity you believe in at that specific moment that it is not an inspector. You could have done better, you could have done more, you could have been in earlier, you could have worked harder, worked faster, worked better. Then you look at the board and see another table, and the stress and panic starts again. This is the life that chefs live every single day. In 2003, a Michelin inspector exposed who he was. His name was Pasco Remy, and he wrote and published a book called The Inspector Sits Down at the Table. Essentially, this was for the first time an actual account into what goes on behind the scenes at Michelin, and it caused mayhem. In the book, he contested the fact that Michelin claims that they visit all 4,000 French-listed restaurants a year, saying that because there were only 11 inspectors for the whole of France, that they would be lucky if they got to each restaurant once every three and a half years. Michelin claims that there are more than 50 inspectors in France. However, in 2003, it was found out that there were only three inspectors for the entire country. It was also stated that Michelin favored some chefs more than others, and that some chefs were considered untouchable and would never lose stars, such as Paul Vaucuse and Alain Ducasse, who incidentally has the most Michelin stars of anyone in the world. If you are a famous chef, then you are more likely to keep your stars because it legitimizes the brand of Michelin. If you are unknown or don't serve French food, the likelihood of you ever reaching three stars is almost impossible. Take the most famous example of this in Noma and head chef Rene Redzeppi from Copenhagen. Noma is widely considered to be the most important and influential restaurant in the world. It has topped other lists and guides and Chef Redzeppi has basically become a rock star, but it only has two Michelin stars. A document came out a while ago that said that it's believed that they only have two stars because they don't have white tablecloths. Noma has beautiful wooden tables. And that's it. No white tablecloths, no third star. There have been so many stories over the years of chefs cracking under the pressure of trying to maintain their star status. But none are more horrible or tragic than that of Benoit Violet, who in 2016, the 44-year-old French-born chef of the three Michelin-starred Swiss restaurant Le Hotel de Ville, or in 2003, Bernard Lassot of the famed Burgundy restaurant Le Côte d'Or, both of these men took their own lives due to the rumor that they were going to lose their three-star status. In the case of Bernard, he had met with a Michelin inspector in 2002 who told him that they were concerned about the quality of the restaurant's cooking. Michelin has denied that this meeting ever took place because it goes against everything that they say about being anonymous. But documents were found, the minutes were kept of the meeting, and it absolutely took place. No other information was given. That would be like if you wrote a dictionary and someone came up to you and told you that you had misspelled a word, but they didn't tell you what word. Bernard's wife has said that he was visibly shocked by the ramifications, and she even went as far as to write a letter to the Michelin Guide saying that their warning had been listened to and that Bernard would spend every waking moment dedicating himself to improving the performance of his kitchen. Improving the performance that he didn't know what was apparently wrong with in one of the best kitchens in the world. The saddest part is that in the case of both of these talented and influential chefs, that they did not in fact lose their three stars that year. I should take a moment to point out that I am not placing the blame of these two men's suicides solely upon the shoulders of the Michelin Guide. Depression is a dark and terrifying place and to point one finger in Michelin's direction would be frankly stupid. However, Both of these men's friends, families, and colleagues have all stated that the pressure to maintain the status of their restaurants and the rumors that they would lose stars resulted in their tragic ends. Take that for what you will. In the modern era that we live in, It would not be foolish to say that we are existing in one of the best times for restaurants and food ever. The internet has connected chefs and cooks and diners across the globe, and we are all better for it. The Michelin Guide is also evolving. It launched a Japanese version of its guide in 2010, making the country instantly the one with the most stars. It has even given Michelin stars to street vendors and food stalls. And that is a strange and very odd thing to see. You do not have to wonder, though, what these French chefs must think about seeing a food stall in Tokyo, despite how delicious it is, get a Michelin star. It kind of throws everything that they believe in about the fine dining guide out of the window. But then again, the guidelines of what it takes to get a star aren't known, so maybe we're all just wrong and the Michelin Guide is just trying to find where the best food is, and that is a noble pursuit. But without clear guidelines, rules, or even a clue as to what determines stars, the Michelin Guide is just the popular girl in high school that you hope will invite you to her party. Eventually, you grow out of wanting to go and I hope that more chefs and cooks won't take their lives if they aren't invited. Every company has its secrets. There is usually blood on the hands of those at the top, and that's fine. But I would like to think that maybe, just maybe, the sheer fact that people are working themselves to death, trying to maintain a status who rules and codes only exist in their imagination, is wrong. Being a chef is a hard, humble, and thankless job. It removes you from your family, your friends, and for some strange reason rewires your brain into thinking that it's the most important thing in the world. Life balance in this career is nearly impossible, and maybe we have to start talking about that. I don't really like to talk about myself on this podcast, and up until now, I never have. I am not a michelin Star chef. I am not a famous chef, nor would I want to be. I work and run a kitchen that is very well known, is always busy, and I am so lucky to be there. I also live in Canada, where the guide does not exist. This past Easter Sunday was the first time in nine years that I went to a family gathering. I haven't had more than four days off in a row in those nine years, and that was the four days after my wedding to my very, very patient and understanding wife three years ago. I sleep at night thinking about food and work and wake up in a panic if there is one shred of doubt that the produce wasn't called in. I am a chef and I am also a nobody. I do not have to worry about anything other than making sure that every single person that walks through the door of the restaurant is happy. My job is to feed people and do my best to make sure that when they leave they are thinking about the next time they can come back. I could not imagine the pressure or the stress that it would take to maintain a level of restaurant so far above my own that I can't even fathom it. And that so many cooks and chefs survive doing that every single day, I have nothing but respect for them. But please, to all of you listening that do work in Michelin-starred kitchens, or even those like me who work hard every single day without the added pressure but are no less valued in this industry, you are more important than some stars or a review printed on a page. Your family and lives outside of those kitchen walls are also more important than the food you are making. It may not seem like it to you, and you may not realize that, and there is absolutely no problem in being obsessed with your work, but doing drugs to stay awake and focused and drinking yourself to sleep every night so you can turn your brain off is not healthy, and it is an industry-wide problem, and we all know it is. It took me a very long time to realize this. It took me nine years, and until about eight episodes of this podcast ago, to realize that. At the end of the day, with all this talk of lists, guides, stars, and rankings of restaurants, there is one simple truth. You know that place that you look forward to going to every time. The place where you know the food is going to be good, the wine will be perfect, the beer will be cold, The waitstaff will smile when you walk in. They remember your face out of the hundreds or thousands that they see every month. The chef may come to the table to say hello, but even if they don't, you know that what you're going to get delivered to you is exactly what you're craving. The music is playing the same playlist it always does, the lighting is just right, and you, without realizing that you're even doing it, slip into the relaxed and comforted feeling that you always get when you go there. That is the best restaurant in the world. And that's all that matters. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark, and produced by Timothy McDonald. Our theme song, as always, is Cone of Light by the Almighty Defenders. I want to thank Kreef and Andy Ricker for letting us talk about them this week. And please, please pre-order both the album Dovetail and the book Pock Pock Noodle. I want to give this week's shout out to Los Donzantes in Oaxaca, Mexico. If you are in the area somehow, please stop by and make sure you say hello from us and thanks to them for listening and writing in. Next week, we are back with a new episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And until then, I hope you have a great service and have a great week.